Hey guys, John Paulamy here, Actionable Intelligence. Today is Saturday, November 20th, and this is the weekly market update. As always, the disclaimer, anything that you see or hear on this podcast or video is not to be taken as investment advice. This is for informational and entertainment value only. Please consult a licensed financial advisor before making any investments in anything you may hear on here. I am not a financial advisor. I cannot give personal financial advice. It's your money. Uh, please do your own due diligence and take responsibility. I'm just a guy on the internet and uh, you should not listen to me for investment advice. Okay, so this week I wanted to talk about what's happening in the crude oil market. I'm getting a lot of emails and messages. What's happening? Is the rally over? Is the release from the SPR? All these things. Is it affecting it? You know, the price. What 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 should I do? I mean, people want hand holding. So I'm going to give you my view on this, and I'm going to have to shift screens real quick. Bear with me. So this is a chart of the crude oil market. Um, and this goes back to late last year or late 2020, if you will. So this encompasses all of two, 2021. And you see the tremendous rally we've had. You see the 200-day moving average. You see the 50-day. This is obviously classic uptrend, classic bull market uh, type behavior. And what you will note is, is that we have had periods back in late March consolidation. Late this summer, we had another consolidation where we dropped from 76 down to 61. Basically, on the first drop, we went down to the 50-day moving average and bounced off it. And the second time, we went close down to the 200-day moving average. So you can see that we have looks like you know we made a little bit of a top here in the intermediate term and now we're turning down uh how far we go down is unknowable in the short term there's no way i can tell you i would say that we've already crossed under the 50 day but we've seen that before uh could we go down to the 200 day very possible um we could very easily go down to the low 70s or even below so why would this happen if we're in an energy bull market well, first of all, things go through periods of, you know, when there's a lot of sediment, there's a lot of activity, there's a lot of people talking about a, a, a certain security or asset class and energy has been on everybody's, everybody's been talking about it. There's been all kinds of forecasts, people coming out, you know, making predictions. And so it's drawn a lot of capital. We've had this little run off the bottom uh, in the summer through the driving season. This is pretty typical of what you see. Um, this is seasonal weakness is one reason. Uh, basically, like I explained on the Discord channel, um, you have tremendous demand through the driving season. The driving season being when everybody's on vacation through the summer, people are driving. There's a lot of construction activity going on. There's a lot of uh, gasoline and diesel uh, demand, uh, people traveling. Uh, whatnot. So what happens is after Labor Day, everybody goes back to work and all of that excess so-called demand um, goes away. 
because you enter what's called the shoulder season. The shoulder season is the period in between the end of the driving season and the beginning of the winter heating season. So what you have is a time when a lot of refineries and other energy oil and gas installations are going through what they call turnarounds. These are periods of maintenance. They last you know, anywhere from three to six to eight weeks, something like this. And this is when major maintenance is done on the refinery um, units, machinery is repaired, upgrades are made, this type of thing. So obviously during that time, crude oil demand will go down because you're not drawing those stocks in, you're not processing crude. And so that's one reason. The other reason why I think crude's pulling back here is, you know, it's slightly overbought. You were way above the 50-day and the 200-day moving averages. The other reason is, and let me shift screens again. Is because seasonality, right? We just talked about that. You can see this is the 20 and 30 year seasonal study based off a starting point of 100 through the year. You see, uh, as you come up through the summer, you build for the driving season. And as you get to mid-October through the month of November and into mid-December, you have, which is where we're at now, you have periods of weakness in the crude market. This is pretty seasonal. This is, this is expected to happen, okay? This is nothing... Um, out of the ordinary. This is pretty typical. So um, once winter gets kicked in, you know, back in here, you start seeing again, you get into January, February, you start seeing demand increase again. So, um, or pricing uh, tends to go up. So we're in the weakest part of the year. Um, and that's another reason. The political, the politis political situation with oil and energy, with the Biden administration uh, trying to get oil prices down, trying to jawbone oil prices down, talking about SPR releases. These things are, you know, for 20 or 30 million barrels they're talking about are nothing in, in the short, medium, or long term. It has no effect, really. Uh, it can have some short-term effect just in the market when you're already in an overbought situation. Um, just another reason for people to sell off. You know, if you have 100 million barrels a day of demand, you know, 20 million barrels is, you know, what, four hours of demand, something like this, four or five hours of world demand for one day, it's nothing. So it's irrelevant. And, um, but, you know, high energy prices, high gasoline prices are uh, very um, political. I mean, people blame the current administration if, if prices go up and we have an inflationary uh, situation right now where prices are going up across the board and therefore uh, people are upset. The other reason I think is that uh, unfortunately uh, it's not something that we were hoping for but it looks like it's happening. You know the uh, pandemic, the disease that cannot be mentioned on YouTube is now entering the northern climates, uh, seasonality. This thing happens in seasonality. It has nothing to do with vaccines or unvaccinated people. Respiratory viruses become more prevalent in the north when it becomes cold because people congregate inside. And we're seeing an uptake in that. We just saw, uh, for example, in Austria, uh, they've locked down now. They're going to have a 20-day lockdown for the entire population. These things do not work, these lockdowns, but that's, that's 
discussion for the other channel that's not for here. That's another reason, right? Because if more countries start doing this, as we see increases in cases, then this could uh, potentially lead to, uh, you know, we don't know. It's unknowable. How many countries would lock down for what periods of time and how would that affect demand? A country like Austria, for example, accounts for 250,000 barrels per day of demand. Um, but even if with the lockdown, you're not going to go to zero demand, right? So it's only 0.3% of world demand. So you have other countries like Germany. What other countries are going to enter lockdown, right? And how's that going to affect the economies and, and, and energy demand? You know, offsetting this will be, I think, some demand that comes in if we have a cold winter because of the natural gas situation in Europe. So we have a lot of moving, new moving balls. So I think you know, these are the reasons why I think that you've had the pullback that you've seen. I don't think anything has changed fundamentally long term from why we are uh, liking energy and oil in particular. Nothing's been solved around the um, supply situation. There's been some uptick in some of private uh, drillers. Um, we're seeing some activity increasing little by little, but it's not coming back like a lot of people thought. Uh, and I'll talk about that uh, in another slide coming up. So I think seasonality, SPR, jawboning, uh, people trying to work out in their head where they think these lockdowns might go if these cases start uh, coming out of the woodwork, which looks like it could be a possibility. But I don't think the appetite for people being locked down again is where it was last year. Uh, I don't think it will have the same... Uh, at least here in the US. Uh, it may be able to do it in some, some smaller countries, but I, I don't think the appetite's gonna be there for people to, uh, you know, to cause the type of dislocation. And even when it did happen last year, we locked the whole world down. I mean, demand didn't go away. So, but this, you know, oil's priced at the margin. And uh, so this is what can happen. So I think long-term, uh, we see where this goes. Uh, Looking at the chart, like I said, I don't want to be a chart reader. It's unknowable what is going to happen. But, you know, don't be surprised if we see a move. I mean, we saw a $15 a barrel uh, drop over the summer uh, from late July till mid-August. And, um, you know, that turned out to be a buying opportunity. So I think you've penetrated the 50-day. A trip down to the 200-day wouldn't be out of the question. That would put you at $70, $71 a barrel. Um, I think that could happen easily uh, over the next couple of weeks or maybe even next week. Uh, I don't think the selling's exhausted, as you can see. Um, you saw at the last drop, we had a pretty good uh, pasting on the um, uh, moving averages. So something to keep in mind, something to look at. This is you know, part of the problem where uh, people want to ask me when they should buy and how they should buy new subscribers. You have to look at the why we're, why we're buying these things, right? What's the overall theme? It's a longer term theme around an energy crisis that's not gonna be resolved by SPR releases or the seasonality of a upper respiratory tract virus. So um, I look at this pullback as being an opportunity to reload, uh, obviously, um, a lot of the companies that we own in the portfolio or just a lot of the companies that I've highlighted publicly, like um, some of the Canadian companies, um, if you listen to their earnings calls, I mean, you have to look at your holdings and say, what 
kind of free cash flow are these companies looking at at 65, 70, 60 to $80 a barrel, um, I think is still generating tremendous free cash flow. And uh, that's what you need to look at. But, uh, you know, people are short term orientated in the market and they want to know why things are happening. And this is the best uh, the best reason I can give you seasonality, SPR um, and job owning by the Biden administration to get prices down, combined with the uncertainty around uh, upper respiratory virus reoccurrence and lockdowns. So. You know, you're still well below, this is the oil inventories in the OECD countries for the last five years, the gray area being the five-year average. Here's 2021, we're well below the five-year average. That's why oil prices are where they were recently. Um, this is last year, of course. So we've worked off this um, oversupply. We're undersupplied now. And, you know, the question is, is that can OPEC supply enough oil going forward? That's the question. I think the call on OPEC will not be able to be answered. I don't think the, the uh, reserve capacity is there uh, that they have advertised. I think they know that. And I think when that realization comes to fruition, uh, that's when you're going to see a tremendous move higher in oil prices. Again, this gives us more visual going back to 2000. You can see where we're at. You see this is the... Um, last the last the oversupply that happened because of the um of the uh disease that cannot be mentioned and we've worked that off so we'll see what happens uh it seems to upticked a little bit here but like i said this is historically a weak period um and this is nothing out of the ordinary so far and this is part of the reason why you know, we're still going to have a problem why I think we're going into energy crisis. This particular article, I'll put links to these articles in the show notes. Bakken production struggling to recover. You know, the Bakken in North Dakota was one of the first oil shale uh, hotspots when this thing took off, you know, over a decade ago. And so what's it say here? The Bakken oil field, North Dakota, the birthplace of America's oil boom a decade ago, is struggling to recover, recover from last year's market crash, even as crude prices have surged to $80 a barrel. Oil producers in the Bakken are now running into, quote, the geological reality that after a decade of rapid development, most of the best wells have been drilled, says Clark Derry, an analyst at the Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis. Quote, it helps to explain why the industry in the Bakken is sort of flatlined, unquote. The dwindling number of high quality wells left to drill, those that can produce high volumes of oil for relatively low cost, will make it difficult for Bakken producers to get output back to pre-pandemic levels. So this is what happens, right? This is the argument that many analysts, some analysts are making. This is the argument that Goring and Rosenzweig has made in their regression analysis. You should read their last couple quarterly reports that they talk about the AI analysis and the uh, tier one analysis they've done of, of different drilling locations and why they think that um, U.S. oil production will not be able to recover, excuse me, to its all time, uh, back to its old highs. Uh, the, the best locations have been drilled off. You know, these oil fields, um, the shale fields uh, were exploited. And now they're going to have trouble getting, you know, getting them back to where they were just because 
you've picked off the low hanging fruit. And so that doesn't mean there won't be production from these fields. It does mean that getting them to return to their prior levels of production will be difficult, if not impossible. And this is why the call on OPEC is so important and why, you know, OPEC not having the um, ability to uh, respond to, you know, having that excess capacity that they've advertised that I don't think is there uh, will not, this is why I think you're going to have the big run up. Once this gets realized by the market, once we get through this shoulder season, once things um, kind of, you know, stabilize uh, and people, the market eventually figures out that in fact, OPEC cannot, uh, does not have the ability to respond um, and then if, if, you know, we don't have a big resurgence in the upper respiratory virus that cannot be mentioned and that locks the planet down again, um, if that doesn't happen, then we're in, we're in big trouble next year, potentially. So that's the whole thesis, right? So here's another chart. This is another reason why I'm positive. And I titled this chart, oil and gas never going away. So what happens is, is, you know, with eight and a half, nine billion people, whatever it is, and many of these people now entering what they call their S curve uh, of commodity demand, what that means is that you get to a certain GDP level in certain countries like China and India, which is 40% of the world's population. And you get in a situation where these people um, get to a certain income level or a certain GDP level per capita and their commodity demand uh, dynamic changes, it, it levels up, if you will. And that's what we're seeing, right? So energy, you know, this idea that, you know, we're going to replace oil and gas with renewables, that's not history. What happens? What happens is, is that when you bring a new technology on, i.e., um, where you went from like traditional biomass here on the bottom to coal, you know, burning wood didn't go away. It declined slightly, but it didn't go away. You just added coal on top, right? And then when oil became exploited over 100 years ago, coal didn't go away, okay? These things just become a smaller part of the overall energy mix, but their total volume pretty much stays the same. And the same thing you see. So this is, you know, as, as you increase energy demand across the world, um, you need these other components when you add a more dense energy source, like when you go from coal to oil, oil to gas to nuclear, it, these things don't disappear. They just, uh, it's additive. And I think that's the thing that a lot of people are missing. They think that you're actually going to get rid of oil and gas. You can get rid of oil and gas. You can get rid of fossil fuels. We can get rid of them, but you will not have, you will live a stone age existence and the population will probably go down by 95, 99%. You would be hunter-gatherers living a, you know, that type of lifestyle. I don't think people really understand that these dense energy sources, what kind of civilization they've enabled. And people not understanding these type of things is what gives us the opportunity. You're not going to replace 140,000 terawatt hours, you know, of energy supply with solar panels and wind. It's a fantasy. It will not happen. It cannot happen. The math does not work. So I don't know, you know, oil and gas are, nat are depleting assets. I think nuclear needs to be really ramped up. In my view, you see how small it is in this component here. It's just this little, you know, area right here. Uh, it should be like half of this 
but uh, you know, I think that this is where we're heading. Uh, but you see that these things don't disappear. You know, they're not supplemented. They don't continue to grow. Though, like coal isn't going away; it just doesn't grow anymore. It's still a major component of the. Um, it's less a percentage of the total, but the total volume grows as the pie grows bigger. That slice grows bigger, but it's still as a percentage-wise the same percentage of the energy mix or less. So, uh, this is a very important slide to understand as energy demand grows, as people um, get wealthier, as people um, energy demand in the emergency markets continues to grow, which it will, unless you know, uh, the masters of the universe somehow stop it. And I don't see that we've had declarations by many, many people in the emerging market that they're not going to stop growing. And so you, you, you see what's going to happen. So if you put artificial constraints on the growth of energy, which we have, this inevitably is leading to a energy crisis. This is the whole thesis. <coughs> so Trifigure chief warns of rolling power outages in Europe this winter. This is uh, a major energy trading firm. Maybe they're talking their own book, but I thought it was an interesting article. Let me take a drink of water. Europe risks rolling power outages if there is a prolonged period of cold weather this winter. According to the chief executive of Trafigura, one of the world's biggest commodity traders. Quote, we haven't got enough gas at the moment, quite frankly. We're not storing for the winter period, unquote. So hence, there is a real concern that if we have a cold winter, that we could have rolling blackouts in Europe. Yes, that's true. Um, we haven't seen the cold weather yet. That's supposed to happen in the next week or two um, as the jet stream dips down and the polar vortex that's been building in the North Pole plunges uh, parts of North America and Europe into below average temperatures. That's the forecast. And that's just going to be in November. You haven't even went through December, January, and February yet. So I would suggest to you that unless we have a very warm winter, we are going to, uh, the energy prices are going to be significantly higher by the end of the winter. That's my view. European wholesale prices eased slightly last month, but remain more than four times the level of a year ago and have risen in recent days. So this is a major problem that's not going away. And so you may have these temporary pullbacks and, you know, volatility should be used to add to your positions. We are in an energy bull market that's going to take a decade at least to play out. The underinvestment is not going to be cured by releases from the SPR, wishful thinking, or, you know, OPEC. It's just not going to happen. Um, hundreds of billions of dollars need to be invested that have not been invested to play catch up. Um, that's just that simple. And uh, we'll see what happens. But, uh, you know, unless we have a confluence of events that I'm not seeing right now or not anticipating, then we're, we're still on track for the energy crisis and significantly higher energy prices, in my view. So this is uh, Eric Nuttall. Um, Financial Post. He did a uh, opinion piece, and this kind of gets to the heart of the issue. Also, um, there's a massive chasm between government policy and our energy reality. It is especially frustrating that in Canada, a country blessed with some of the most abundant energy resources in the world, the majority of the population suffers from profound energy ignorance. I wouldn't just say Canada; I would say that's the majority of the the whole world. Most people don't give any thought to energy, 
what it enables, how critical it is, how difficult it is to obtain, uh, and how this whole system works to allow the civilization we have. Quote, the lack of knowledge of how hydrocarbons are used, how critical they are to our daily lives, and the realistic timeline to replace them with a renewable alternative. Without oil and natural gas, we would literally be back in the Stone Age, experiencing a fraction of our current standard of living. That is true. That's absolutely true. So how did we get here where the average Canadian thinks the end of oil is at hand? Politicians contemplate the necessity of limiting production growth and where we have lost sight of how blessed we are as a nation to be gifted with such valuable energy resources. Well, that goes into a lot of other things um, besides just uh, the lack of ignorance around energy, which I'm not at liberty to discuss on YouTube, because if I do, I'll be banned. So therefore, uh, if you wanna know more about this, you can probably, of why these things are happening, why the West is sick and dying, um, you can you know go to my reality check channel and I talk about uh, those reasons over there because you're not allowed to talk about reality, uh, certain realities here on YouTube. So to go on, uh, what else does he say? There's a massive chasm between well-intentioned government policies. I wouldn't even say they're well-intentioned. What they are is politically expedient. Um, what they are is a grift. What they are is to take care of political appointees of this misguided notion that you're gonna control the climate. It's ridiculous. Man in his hubris, ignorance, and uh, narcissism uh never this is mankind throughout history you know building towers to the sky to get to god you know the uh phoenicians building up but you know uh trying to in the epic of gilgamesh you know trying to build ships to go to visit the gods all these things that's been you know man wants to be a god that's kind of what we're getting at here it's part of the problem you're going to control everything I mean, this is ridiculous. Look at yourself in this planet, this little spaceship Earth flying through this vast universe with all these things going on. The sun's involved, the different planets, different things are involved, ocean currents, and we're going to control it by, uh, we're going to control this complex system by um, limiting the growth of CO2 on the planet. Uh, seems pretty out there to me, but that's, that's what I think. Nevertheless, um, this is another reason it doesn't matter. Again, we get back to what I've, you know, got off track there a bit, go back to what I've said before. It doesn't matter about these arguments. If you want to limit energy, the growth of BTUs <laughs> that's available, price is going to go up because people in the end are not going to accept a stone age existence. They're not going to accept a massive reduction in their standard of living unless it's forcibly done. And I, you know, I know the pointy shoes are trying to do different things, but they can't even get this vaccine mandate through. OK, here in the U.S., there's no way they're going to say, OK, everybody, we're going to lower your standard of living by 50 percent because we're going to save the, the planet. People won't stand for it because they just don't see it. They've seen the lies. They've seen the um, the late nights. I, I, I make it akin to that, to the late night doomsday preachers right on TV. Every time that the Palestinians launch missiles into Israel, the second coming of Christ and the rapture is happening next week. It never happens. And then these people just are relegated to channel 42 UHF channels at one in the morning. No one watches it. It's the same thing here. It's been crying wolf for decade after decade. We've been, we've been at the cusp of a 10 years until the planet fries for you know 20 or 30 years now. And people realize that. So they're not going to be open to having their standard of living decrease. And you're already starting to see the backlash. And it's going to continue to grow, in my view.
So another canard that I want to uh, dispel is the fact that a lot of people were saying, well, you know, energy stocks are not investable. So what's interesting here, here is the, here's the uh, Bank of America did a uh, energy or client net buys of energy stocks for Bank of America securities. And maybe this is just, you know, this is not overall, this is just Bank of America securities, but I'm sure they have tens of thousands of customers, so they can pretty much tell what's going on. And so we've seen the biggest inflows into energy uh, since they've been tracking this for the last 13 years. So the idea that people weren't going to invest in energy because they were all jazzed up for green, look, if these companies are making money, if the price of energy is going up, if it's translating into increased cash flows and dividends and share buybacks and increasing share prices, they'll, they'll, they'll buy the stocks. Because as I've said before, um, general investors, it's all about the bottom line. If stocks are going up, it's a shiny object, they're going to chase it. So this is part of the reason why we're probably having the pullback also. You know, we've got a lot of people now in the market now coming into the market. So many people talking about it. Sediment got way, way too, too out of line with the fundamentals. But, uh, you know, we're going to have a pullback in the context of a ongoing bull market. That's my view. But I, I thought this was an interesting chart because the thing that is being communicated to people is, is that, well, people aren't going, the generalist investor won't invest in energy because of ESG. No, BlackRock and some of these other grifters that are trying to take over, okay, and skew uh, things for their own benefit won't, won't buy into it. But that doesn't mean uh, other investors uh, will not. And the companies, if no one else will buy them, they'll buy themselves back. As I've demonstrated before and shown, uh, the work that uh, Nine Point Partners has done, with the cash flows even at $70 or $75 a barrel WTI, most of the companies in Canada, for example, can extinguish all of their debt and theoretically buy back all their shares in three to five years. So if you think that we're going to have an energy bull market, which I think we're in for the next several years at least, probably for the rest of the decade, we're, in, we're going to have an uh, energy crisis in my view, then cash flows are going to explode. And, you know, if nobody wants to buy the stocks, the, the people, uh, managements will buy their own stock back. Uh, it's just that simple. So some more positive. Um, this is just more news that's positive. Indonesia edging towards the nuclear options article. Nuclear is a notable absentee from the list of renewables in Indonesian power utility PLN's latest plan for the next decade but flip the page to the country's ambitious 2060 zero carbon scenario, and it figures prominently after 2035. For nuclear exponent Bob FND, the door is now irrevocably open. The political decision has been made with no fanfare. He asserts pointing to the pending new and renewable energy bill where the new stands for nuclear. It can't be reversed. Analysts say if Indonesia hopes to achieve the prosperity status by 2050 or in 0.8 grade on the human development index, electricity consumption will have to increase from the current 1000 kilowatt hours per capita a year to 4000 kilowatt hours per year. I mean, I use probably 1100 kilowatts hours a month, okay, at my place. So um, they're gonna quadruple electric demand in a country with 250 million people, probably going to 400 million people in the next couple of decades. People don't understand how big Indonesia is population-wise. It's a growing economy. 
people don't even pay attention to it. There's a lot going on there. So it's not necessarily climate change for a lot of these countries. It's you have to have a energy mix. You can't just be all on coal or all on that gas. You see what happens. You have to have a diversified energy mix. This is what reasonable, um, smart people do in their planning. They don't just rely on one or two things uh, when they're talking about energy diversification. So security of energy, which enables, which enables uh, economic growth, has to be at the forefront. And nuclear um, is now making a comeback. We're just hearing about it week after week after week. Another country here, another country there, China, India, Russia, I mean, all over the place. Bangladesh is even building a second reactor, is going to build another a reactor. So um, obviously, I think the U.S. is missing the boat on this. We used to be one of the leaders in nuclear construction and operational technology. We've let that atrophy and the Chinese and Russians are running away with it. And especially in Asia, that will be used, um, that ability to provide the reactor technology, to build it, to engineer it, to supply the components. We'll also have a political and geopolitical component to it, and we're missing the boat on that. We should have a full-blown effort going on in this country right now to nuclear. As I've said before, I've been a big advocate of, you know, whatever number you want to use, 10 and 10, 20 and 20, whatever, you know, building uh, these reactors, uh, having the government private partnership so we can build that industry back so we can get start getting those kids through those engineering programs, start building up that, uh, you know, standardized reactor design like they've done in China. Um, get that whole infrastructure of support companies, allow it to start building itself. And we're not doing that. We're going to get dusted by the Russians and by China. And they're going to use it as a geopolitical tool to influence and to uh, create uh, alliances with other countries. Energy security is national security. And we're missing the boat again. You know, we're talking about who can use what bathroom and this other nonsense. It's, it's mind boggling the infantilism that goes on and the so-called leadership in this country. But this is why we're in decline. So I wanted to point this out. Uh, I'm a big bull on copper. You know, I don't really know where we're going with these EVs. It's not going to go as fast or as far as I think many people think, just because when you start looking at this, the copper that's required, you know, your conventional uh, internal combustion engine vehicle uses 18 to 45 pounds of copper you start going up you know to hybrid electric vehicles this is like a, a gasoline engine that charges batteries and the, or the thing can run or generator now you're up to 85 pounds of copper then you get into plug-in hybrids battery electric vehicles you're at 183 you know hybrid electric bus 196 trains or trams 814 pounds i mean we already know for a fact that copper discoveries have not been keeping up with replacement. We know that head grades are going down as we've exhausted uh, a lot of the fines that we made decades ago, and that a lot of the new production that's supposed to come online, for example, Oyu Tolgoy in Mongolia is having issues in its underground portion of its mine. So, um, you know, we're going to have an issue with having enough copper to you know, not everybody's going to be able to have 100% electric vehicles. There's just not enough material to do it. And uh, certainly not on the near-term horizon. So I think this is another thing that's going to shock people is how high I think some of these prices go. 
you know, um, copper has been relatively in, you know, above $4 a pound for quite a bit of time now. And, you know, if you look at somebody that talks about this a lot, Gorian and Rosenzweig, I go back to them, not for confirmation bias. I just point out some of the analysis they did. They can, they can easily see 12 to $15 copper at some point in, you know, this decade, because you need incentive pricing to go out and find those deposits or exploit those deposits that have lower and lower grades. That's the problem, right? As you, you're always going to develop the higher grade, easier to develop deposits first. And so the price has to go up to incentivize companies to uh, spend the capital to go in and, you know, develop in areas that are politically difficult or have uh, engineering issues or have issues around, you know, grades being low. So you have to be compensated. So, and again, this takes time. We haven't been making those investments. That's not just in copper, that's in nickel, that's in graphite. That's all these things that we need that people are not paying attention to. They just magically think this is all going to happen. So this is the opportunity, right? It's like Eric Nuttall talked about in that article, that dichotomy, that uh, disconnect between what people think they want or think is gonna happen and what reality is. That provides the opportunity set for us as it, as it, uh, with respect to uh, energy and uh, energy investing. All right, guys, uh, that's it for this week. Again, um, we're long-term bullish, we're medium-term bullish. In the short term, anything can happen. And so I wouldn't get overly excited about what happened this week. Uh, pullbacks happen, nothing goes straight up. Uh, we've seen this ha happen before, it will continue to happen. Uh, and you have to use volatility as your friend. If you have a thesis that you agree because you've done the analysis that you think energy is going to be more expensive going forward for the reasons that we've outlined many, many times, then you're a buyer on pullbacks. It's just that simple. If you think that uh, oil's going away, or if OPEC can is going to swamp the market with all this oil, or whatever the you know thesis is for this oversupply, uh, it's not going to happen. And um, uh, uh, the investment just hasn't been there. And so uh, I think that we're going to see uh, going forward over the next couple of years, uh, energy prices are going to shock a lot of people. All right, guys, that's it for this week. Um, we'll talk to you next week. Take it easy.